2: Hi, I'm Anoush and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm joined by my colleagues Stephen, Alva and Patrick to discuss Keir Starmer's response to the coronavirus and his call for the government to publish their exit strategy. We talk about what's going on in the UK's care homes and Sarah Manavis, our digital culture writer, joins us for our You Ask Us on the 5G conspiracy theory. So this week, we've seen sort of Keir Starmer's first performance, really, as an opposition leader, and he's gone in hard on the government about clarifying their exit strategy, or at least their their different plans for how we can come up with an exit strategy from lockdown. And this has been quite controversial, hasn't it? Because some people have been criticising him by saying, well, there's more pressing things to hold the government to account on at the moment, like the level of testing and the supply of protective equipment to frontline workers. And also, as Stephen's written many times, we're nowhere near exiting the lockdown if you look at the actual figures of the disease transmission and and the people dying in hospital. So why has he gone for this angle? It does It does seem jarring when you listen to it sometimes?
0: Well, so their thinking is essentially kind of of semi-threefold, right? One, they think basically the government went into lockdown without a plan and therefore did not make the best initial fist of it. And they think then having a, a public debate about lockdown will facilitate a better version of it I think too they also partly think that Keir thinks uh, they will not have an exit strategy conversation in public and the exit strategy will therefore be bungled so you might as well kind of put the marker down now in a kind of like let's have a debate let's have a discussion about how to do this best oh you didn't have a discussion about how to do it best and then the third thing the low politics of it is that we know that the cabinet is visibly split about exit strategy and therefore forcing an issue on which the Conservative Party has different schools of thought, both within the Cabinet and the Parliamentary Party, is sort of like kind of fairly classic effective opposition policy making. And then looking further forward, the kind of theory, and obviously all of these things may turn out disastrously wrong, is the, the thing that politics is going to be after this is all over is an argument broadly between a Conservative Party saying this means another period of, of austerity and spending cuts and a Labour Party going, actually, we can fund this in a different way. Now, of course, you can fairly critique whether or not you think that will actually be the dividing line, or indeed, if you think that's a a healthy dividing line for the Labour Party to to go on. But it's essentially all about those kind of short-term inconveniencing and also positioning themselves so they are in what they think is the best possible position to benefit when that dividing line does become the sort of pressing issue
2: it's really interesting isn't it because i i get the i get the reasoning so obviously even though public approval for continuing the lockdown is sky high at the moment obviously the legacy of this and the politics and the and and the sort of aftermath is going to be all about the economic ruin that that the country will end up in I was doing some stuff on the latest ONS stats and a quarter of businesses have closed and a fifth of UK household incomes have been hit by this already. So you know that that's going to be where the, the next battleground lies. But I do think that, you know, it's usually the government in power that, get, that gets punished for making those decisions, even if the opposition went along with it. You know, the Iraq war being, being one of those examples, I suppose, of people not really remembering that the Conservative Party were on board. So, yeah, I don't know whether or not he making hay out of it now is necessarily the right the right thing because he will always be able to or whoever's in charge you know this is going to go on for for many years will be able to say later you didn't deal with the aftermath properly, you didn't put in the adequate social security for example or the, or enough help for businesses
3: surely it's better to make effectively a tactical decision to make no first impression or a minimal first impression on voters than it is to blunder in at a time of national crisis and quite uncanny unanimity among the electorate, you know, the government's approval ratings very high, ditto the prime ministers, also support for the current policy the government is pursuing is also very high. So what's the incentive for Starmer to to blunder in beyond, obviously, the, the moral and ethical questions of shouldn't somebody be doing a better job of socking it to the government over its manifold failings? I don't know whether that's actually, well, it's not a question of tone rather than um, than substance, because obviously you turn on Sky and Liz Kendall is on there on the hour, every hour talking about the crisis in social care and how hard that sector has been hit so I don't know whether it's just the shift in emphasis and, and and tone that we're talking about here, or or actually whether it's an interesting question whether we are actually not noticing the the sort of conventional opposition stuff the Labor front bench is doing.
4: It's just an interesting early example of the challenges of being in opposition. Really, I agree with Anoush that at points it has seemed a little bit silly. And as Patrick was saying, it seems a bit. A bit silly to to blunder in calling for something that the public won't necessarily agree with you on, that seems like Keir Starmer is getting ahead of himself slightly, that won't necessarily chime very well with the public mood, even though, as Stephen was saying, this is basically the most effective way of scrutinising the government by asking the government to publish a plan that Labour can scrutinise and to hold that debate earlier and in public. But the thing that it actually reminded me of was um, around the time of the general election, obviously some publications were endorsing and others weren't. And there was a discussion about the value of publications in general calling for things. I know that you know some people in journalism argue that publications shouldn't call for things that aren't going to happen. And I slightly felt that with Keir Starmer that does he not slightly undermine himself by calling for the government to publish something that they are not any more likely to publish with him having called for it because the public aren't really behind him on this one yet
2: yeah i think that and i think in all of the interviews where he's asked about it it's it's difficult for him to justify the approach because even just, you know, I, I agree, I think there should be as much scrutiny as po- as possible. But even just the mention of the exit strategy, the medical officers like um, Chris Whitty have said, you know, this could distract from our core message, which is stay at home. And, you know, to maintain social distancing and self isolate, if your household has symptoms, you know, he's been saying that it's dangerous to distract from that message by moving on to even a conversation about an exit strategy, because we're nowhere near that point yet. And I think there was one interview where Keir Starmer had to sort of just say, oh, I disagree. I think that's a bit odd when you're just sort of saying that you disagree with someone who is the sort of medical expert, not the best look, I think it sounded quite weak.
4: And quite plainly, at the beginning of this, the big challenge and failure of the government was to maintain a clear communication strategy. And and I think a large part of that was because they had a strategy the entire time of gradually escalating the approach, like they'd always said that they would move on to different phases. But every single time they introduced a new approach or escalated the measures further, it looked like a U-turn. And they ended up undermining their own advice and there is a a risk of doing that in reverse and I think that yeah that argument from Chris Whitty is much stronger than than Keir Starmer's one because once people are having a live debate about whether we could be out and about again it probably will undermine the vague consensus that we have at the moment.
0: So I have a question just like I want to do a quick survey Anoush when what month do you think we will be out of lockdown by?
4: I think probably uh, October, October,
0: Al- November Alba, time. What oh. do you think we'll be out of lockdown by?
4: I think around September, but I suppose actually I'm just not sure in that I'm expecting that, you know, in our lives, it's been completely feasible for us to work from home. And I I can't foresee a time that that we'll be back in the office for quite a while, but I feel like I'll be allowed to like go up to the local high street and buy a coffee and sit there for a bit while social distancing sooner than that
0: sooner than that so you you think you will be able to go for
3: a coffee and have a sit down before september
4: or by september yeah
3: by september patrick god that's it's a really depressing question i I suppose we have to define like you know uh, like all the essays i ever wrote and all all the questions i've ever answered uh, let me waste 10 minutes (laughs) defining defining its terms In my head, I define this as uh, when will I be able to go? Regular listeners will know I'm, I'm in Southport, and the end of lockdown for me will be when I'm able to go to a pub on the promenade called The Windmill, and I just it's really hard to get a handle on that. When will pubs be open? Who knows? Probably not for a very long time. I reckon we'll be in a similar position to, obviously comparing apples and oranges to a certain extent, but I reckon we'll do what Germany is doing now at the start of June, that's my that's my opening bit.
0: Yeah, right. So the, the reason why I wanted to do that is what I think is striking, because I, I think I think there are two interesting things about this this moment. One, then of course, the major advantage that Keir Starmer has than Jeremy Corbyn did not have. He has a full front bench, right? Obviously, Jeremy Corbyn nominally had a full front bench, but in terms of like people who he were actually ideologically aligned to, he had a f- front bench of what about ten? And then if you assume that any given parliamentary party, only about a third of the people in it are sort of of the necessary quality, he basically had a parliamentary, he had a, a kind of bench of maybe five or six people. So he had to do all of the oppositioning himself. Obviously, the advantage he has is the like day-to-day stuff about like, why are you bad on, on care homes? Liz Kendall, the shadow minister for social care can do that because they're ideologically aligned on, on that issue, if, even if they come apart on, on other ones. The question I have and I realise I genuinely don't know, is I feel so much of the isn't this too soon. It's from people who, I, yeah, I'm, basi- I'm basically intrigued. To like, When does the country think they're going to get out of this?
2: There was some polling on this. The ONS uh, did a survey on this. A third of people think we'll be back to normal within four to six months, while another third of people think it will take longer than six months. So I guess we're all kind of in that ballpark.
4: For context, my um, foolish friends are so desperate to get out of lockdown that they have booked tickets for a festival in late August but that's being specifically put on, I think, to celebrate the end of lockdown, <laughs> even though that is definitely money they are not getting back. <laughs> what do you think, Stephen? You haven't
2: said said your prediction.
0: Uh, I think we'll be very lucky to be out of lockdown by the end of 2020 in a meaningful sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and this I think is why I disagree about this as a kind of approach, right? Extra is the thing he's been talking about since day one, and I broadly think that the government has not been straight with itself really about how long this might go on. You kind of see it in the fact Robert G- Robert Jenrick is the only one who's done any policy that might make lockdown more bearable, with his change to make it easier for you, for for shops to operate as takeaways and deliveries. Right. He's the only person who's actually used any of his policy powers to do stuff based around anything other than the idea. And this is like a kind of like, oh, do you remember the summer of 2020 when we were all inside kind of nostalgia kind of trip? And I just think that I'm, maybe I'm hugely wrong, but I just think that in the, the kind of like the when are we going to get out of this stuff? Like, I, I, I think Alvin, I think your foolish friends are more like the country than anyone in this discussion. And I'm not convinced, particularly actually, and this is this is very much something I have directly plagiarised from a Conservative MP I spoke to shortly before we started. If you think about like the things about lockdown that are particularly difficult, right, they, they, they basically went, look, if you imagine you're any type of key worker, so you can at least go outside, right? They were like, they said, well, they said, actually, at both ends of the income dis- distribution, key workers are more likely to be Labour voters, right? They're like, doctors teachers etc etc more likely to be labor voters now statistically they were like and still actually despite all of the like slightly fantastical kind of narrative about like the people who labor lost actually bus drivers bin collectors delivery drivers more likely to be labor voters and they just said like they were like they're like i think about my own constituency where you have a family in a house that is perfectly nice but is slightly too small if one person isn't at work or able to like go for a long drive. They would decide, where people can work from home a bit, but it's difficult and everything gets delayed and the internet's not quite good enough and everyone is just getting quite fractious. They said that that type of family in my seat believes that this will all be over by August. And yeah, I kind of wonder if if they're right, right, and their people are more representative of the country, is this um is this actually like the a sensible move. My concern about it is I am not convinced that the dividing line of how you pay for it is going to be the one that Labour thinks it will be, simply because I just think that, like, mm. obviously, the economic consensus against austerity was already quite strong. But the consensus that it would be a mistake to see the economic crisis of coronavirus ending the day of a vaccine or ending the day that the lockdown is is over is even larger. So, I'm just not sold yet on the idea that the next election will be austerity versus not austerity. I think it might be like 2019 again.
3: I think the point you made in um, in Morning Call this morning, Stephen, talking about North Korea, uh, North Korea, bloody hell, I was going to say North Korea telling us what trade-offs people are prepared to make in terms of their civil liberties. <laughs> and the answer there, it turns out, is all of them. And when I say willing, I mean when they are compelled to do so. In terms of actually people in Britain, it's interesting you talk about the economy won't be the dividing line. Actually, people hitherto have been quite happy or, you know, willing to grin, bear it, comply, because the surrender of their civil liberties has had a very well-defined and data-driven policy, a public policy end, if you know what I mean. Like, you know, you're saying, if you don't do this, your grandmother will die, and so will thousands of other people, and the NHS will implode, at which point people are like, fine. I don't care how much this costs. The government can underwrite this for whatever. But if it gets to if it gets to a point in, you know, as you say, August, other European countries aren't doing this anymore and the ask isn't accompanied with a sort of easily identifiable and sort of externally verified answer in policy terms, I think that's the point of when when it gets different. I don't think many people are gonna say if Keir Starmer and Annalise Dodds are on the telly say or oh, maybe they will have their small business owners. I, I, as long as Rishi Sunak is on telly say, we'll we'll pay for this, don't worry come what may. I don't think that is the, the, the divine line, as you say, Labour think it is. It, it will be, why Why are we still doing this? What What are we doing this for, is a more pertinent question when you're asking people to surrender the most fundamental of their civil liberties, I think.
4: I also just think that this was an opportunity for Keir Starmer to drive something massively up the agenda, like something like domestic abuse, even though people are talking about that and really aware of it and measures are being put in place. I think if Keir Starmer had made his first big intervention on that, people would have been pretty impressed and completely behind him.
1: One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress.
0: Uh, It's a, it's a t-shirt.
1: Until you tried it on.
0: So Patrick, you had a question at the press conference and asked about care homes, which of course are becoming epicenters of the progression of the novel coronavirus. And that has become, a, you know, obviously, it's a human tragedy, but it's also becoming a, a you know, real political story as well. So yeah, just take us through what is going on at the moment with care homes.
3: Take, take you back to my um, story appearance on, uh, on on Easter Monday. Yeah, I put a ton on everything. Um the qu-
2: my mum was very excited. <laughs>
3: uh, well, there, there was a conspiracy theory doing the rounds on Twitter that I was wearing a wig and I say conspiracy theory. I mean, one person said that's a shocking syrup on the man from the New Statesman. Uh, <laughs> or he's just waiting for his barbers to open. The, the truth answer was I'd washed and conditioned my hair. <laughs> Especially... Um, and also, I, I trimmed my beard and everything, and there were several tweets <laughs> saying, have a shave, you're going on national television. Anyway, this is, there's a serious public policy issue at play. So I asked how many care homes are infected with coronavirus. It, it had been 9% the previous week, and it had in the intervening five days, it increased to 13.5%, with 92. The big stat out of that press conference was that 92 care homes in the preceding 24 hours have been infected. And I asked... Uh, a follow-up as you're allowed to do, and I said, how are you going to make sure people in care homes have PPE? And Dominic Robb just sort of said, we have so much PPE, you wouldn't believe it, and it's all going to be fine. But really, the revelations we've seen in the, in the week that's ensued suggest that it's not fine. And uh, I commend to to listeners, this is for a number of reasons, I commend to listeners to seek out George Grills's piece on why this isn't just a a health policy issue. It's also a social security policy issue because you have care workers who are unwell coming into to work. You have agency workers who work at multiple homes. And if anything, this, I think, it's been a while since I've done unreconstructed Andy Burnham's stannery on this podcast, but I'm delighted to bring it back. Surely this is a really strong argument for the integration of health and social care. We sort of have a massive hotbed of infections on sort of a sort of parallel track, operated to a large extent by the private sector where the testing regime is haphazard. Very few people have adequate PPE and we don't really have a massive, we don't really have a handle on how many people are dying or how many people are infected and how care workers might be spreading it because they don't have PPE. And also because of the, the welfare and their system and their precarious employment have to go to multiple homes and are affecting at risk people. So, yeah it's a, it's a bad business and it's a question the government hasn't answered beyond the badge so yeah
2: yeah it's absolutely a i I do think it's absolutely an issue of like you say social security because lots of people who work in in social care are on these casual contracts or work for agencies and so don't have the same security as other kind of workers but also lots of people who do care shifts also have other jobs as well so they're sort of trying to top up their their salaries or their other wages by by those kind of shifts and these are the people who are most likely to be hit the hardest if they have to no longer go to work so you can't separate that from from what's happening in our in our care homes and that is you know a very political issue and I think the Labour Party, you know, contrary to what we were saying in the previous section, I think they've picked that up as a policy issue quite well, with Liz Kendall in her new role. But as well as that, I do think that you can't, like you say, this sort of false divide of social care from from the NHS, you, you can't divide it, because as we've spoken on this podcast, many times before, pressures in social care and care in the community are, are one of the main reasons why the NHS is under so much pressure and other frontline services as well. And so you can't separate the two, and yet they are sort of arbitrarily separated. So you have this two-tier system that makes it seem as if people, older people and vulnerable people who are in care homes or receive care at home are kind of being treated as second class or neglected. You even see that in the stats, you know, the, 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 the deaths that don't figure in the, in the figures that we hear every day. They come out once a week. Yeah,
0: it's, you know, to, to kind of continue my like reputation as like the most horrendously right wing person in this podcast. The thing is, is right, it, I think it's obviously horrific. The weird thing I keep arguing with myself about, and I genuinely
3: don't know, is actually how much do people care? Every extended family will have a relative in a care home. So surely, or, you know, will be, and it's not just elderly relatives, it's um, adult social care. And I think we've probably covered this on our site. But actually, vulnerable adults are now being housed in social care homes for the elderly because the the system is so shonkily constructed. So I'm sure people do care, and even if they don't, surely nothing will increase the salience of the issue like you know a massive crisis striking it down. And you know, as Boris Johnson said towards the start of this crisis, thousands of loved ones dying before their time.
4: I think that's totally right. i um, because we know that part of the the crisis in social care has been caused by a growing number of of as you say like vulnerable adults people with learning disabilities with conditions who, who aren't necessarily older that as they live longer they are putting extra pressure on the social care system so those people of all ages who are like incredibly loved and I think that it's it's particularly sad this idea that you use you, that it's these spaces where it's uniquely vulnerable people all altogether there to be cared for in a particular way, who are in basically hotbeds of infection because the people who care for them aren't being protected adequately. But I also think that this is, it goes to show just quite how, how bad that herd immunity blunder was, that this whole problem with social care not is particularly chilling because the government said not very long ago that it had pretty much accepted that a large chunk of the population would die as a cause of coronavirus and that was just the way the cookie was going to crumble.
0: Yeah, I guess so my hesitancy, right, is that since about, trying to work out if you're being extremely charitable, since about 2005, right, the social care problem has become kind, has first gone from, hey, this is going to be a real crisis if we don't sort it out hey, this is looking really troubling. Maybe we should do something about it in 2009. Hey, oh, well, I'm sure that somehow Monitor will fix this in 2012. Oh, I have a solution, but oh, wait, no, the voters hate it in 2017, right? To 2019, oh, don't worry about it. We'll have a cross-party commission. Magic will happen and you won't have to lose your own homes, being the winning electoral offer in 2019 on social care, right? Then up until now, people have always been rewarded for ignoring this problem and I completely take the point that everyone has a, a, a relative yeah, you know, whether one who's distant and close who is in some way involved in this but I do just think there's a possibility that it might just be forgotten but maybe that is just because I've just now grown so inured to governments not having to fix social care.
2: I think that's a fair conclusion to draw from yeah like you laid out the the sort of recent history of various parties attitudes towards social care and there is some interesting polling which shows that people don't actually know what social care means and you know some people think that it's all paid for like the NHS is until they interact with it and it is it is quite a strange phrase as well because it covers all manners of different types of of care so i do think there's a there's a there's poor communication with the public of how it works as well
4: I do think, though, that actually this is why I find it one of the most interesting areas of policy, aside from the fact that people have loved ones in, in care homes and so on. I think, I think ultimately people are self-absorbed in, in some way and think a lot about what will happen to them when they're old. And so the debate about how we look after our older people is pretty universal And whenever there are sort of think tank debates on this or fringe events at conferences, I think it's just one of the most interesting and emotive issues. And I accept that I think the the phrase social care is confusing and people who haven't interacted with it probably don't have much of a sense of how it works. But the people who have interact with it in such a, a personal and emotional way that it creates really urgent and interesting policy debates. I mean, I would hope that, that this would just make that starker.
0: And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. And so we've had a lot of questions this week about, and indeed last week, about, or maybe even this week, I mean, who knows what time is anymore, about 5G. And so we've brought in our digital culture uh, maven, Sarah Manavis, to discuss it. And the question for us is, is there an electoral market for 5G conspiracies? Sarah, could you, for the benefit of people who are trying to avoid as much news from the hellscape than is the world in 2020. Could you just take us through what the 5G conspiracy is?
1: Yeah, so it's a very rich conspiracy theory, and it's really, really popular. Essentially, what it is, is that 5G cell towers, so the cell towers that already exist that do 4G, but that 5G is being implemented at the moment, are essentially giving off emissions that are causing coronavirus symptoms. There's also the idea that it's not necessarily the missions. It's something about coronavirus as a distraction from 5G being implemented and that there's more sinister stuff happening. But essentially the mainstream conspiracy theory, which is, again, not true at all whatsoever and has, in fact, been proved untrue. It's not just like an untrue link. It's just entirely untrue. Anyways, that's the mainstream one, is that 5G emissions are causing coronavirus symptoms, not coronavirus.
2: And whereabouts is this, whereabouts is the theory spreading? Because we've seen loads of coverage of it in the mainstream media, not least with Eamon Holmes, you know, household name, ITV presenter mentioning it on This Morning in a way that suggested that there might be, you know, some doubts about whether it's not true this week. But whereabouts did it actually start?
1: Yeah, so the thing about 5G is that it's kind of been a conspiracy theory for a really long time. Like it dates back a couple of years now. And so people have always been sort of scared of it. But we're in this really strange situation right now where we're in the middle of a pandemic at a time where people have never been more online. And where conspiracy theories really thrive, unsurprisingly at the moment, is on the internet. So you have people on the internet more often than usual. Conspiracy theories already going around about something that was already a pretty mainstream conspiracy theory beforehand, which creates this perfect storm of people suddenly being forwarded WhatsApp messages and reading things on Facebook or seeing a tweet or even going onto more niche platforms like Reddit and 4chan, um, you know, niche for the non-mainstream internet user. Yeah. And they're seeing these conspiracy theories just online sort of in their daily lives, I guess, during this pandemic.
0: So in terms of this sort of electoral constituency, like, how big a a trend is this? Obviously, there's been some vandalism. So it's therefore, you know, it is a serious real world trend with with serious implications. But, you know, are, are we talking about, you know, enough people to elect a Liberal Democrat MP? What's the kind of portion of people who are 5G conspiracists?
1: So I do actually, I hate to say this, but I do think there probably is like an extreme enough number of people that this isn't just like some niche conspiracy theory in which it's a radicalized small corner of the internet. Because there's not really that much being done to stop people from thinking 5G is a thing other than people going, it's not a thing. And then you get for every one person saying 5G isn't a thing, you get crazy people online going, Well, have you not read this report with like a million typos that's on this blog, which is still like a .blogspot.com blog? Of course, it's still a thing. So I think it actually is like a relatively large portion of the population that believes something is happening with 5G. And, you know, it's not even just that it's gullible middle-aged or old people who are on the internet for the first time ever, and they're the ones coming across 5G. It's actually a lot of young people who also believe that 5G is causing coronavirus, which again, it's not. I was speaking to some students that live in Brent in London, and they were saying how they're seeing it on Instagram, they're seeing it on Snapchat. So it's pretty wide reaching. And that's where I think it probably does have an electoral viability as a policy. And I, and I wouldn't be surprised if we do see it, even if it's cloaked in different language, even if it's like there's something else wrong with 5G. And for that reason, we should get rid of 5G or I'm suspicious of where it's come from, and not directly saying, oh, it causes coronavirus, I think there's a genuine possibility that someone could start doing that in that sort of veiled way and could genuinely win votes off of making that a major platform. Mm, I think think
2: one of the things, the political vulnerability of this could be for far right politicians or sort of populist politicians or just figures in in those circles taking advantage of it and exploiting it because that's what the far right in this country has always done with conspiracy theories of all shapes and sizes throughout time you know this isn't a, a new era of conspiracy theories we've always had them and there's a good report on NS Tech about how both 3G and 4G And mobile phones themselves attracted sort of health scare delusions when they came in. So it's nothing new, but it's always something that's open to exploitation. And I was doing quite a lot of reporting on them hard Brexiteers and the far right during 2018, 2019 and there was a story then in Sunderland about their street lamps some people thought that they were doing sort of secret government trials and giving out 5G on their street lamps and and one of them got pulled down so there was vandalism there and Gateshead council had to deny that anything dodgy was going on and the conspiracy theory then was that these these whatever was coming out of the street lamps was giving people cancer and that was really jumped on by some of the more sort of extreme English nationalist corners of Facebook and other social media sites. And so I do think that it sort of gives those kind of politicians who exploit vulnerabilities in people's thinking and also people's mistrust in in mainstream outlets and and also people's search for answers in a very confusing and scary world.
1: Yeah, totally. And I think like one thing that is really interesting about this and the way it can be capitalized by those figures is I've written about 5G a couple of times now, or at least posted about it on Twitter, for example, since the pandemic and since lockdown. And more often than not, it's not people going, oh, 5G, no, you're wrong. 5G is causing coronavirus. It's people being like, we shouldn't silence those who are pushing this conspiracy theory. So it can really easily, even if you go like, oh there's no evidence, blah, 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 but you can still make it like a free speech issue. And I think that's kind of where the Eamon Holmes Mm. territory was heading, was he was like, oh, we must have a questioning mind. The state (laughs) narrative, which again, is just absolute madness. But I think that in that way, yeah, I absolutely agree. Like, it can become a free speech issue. And while you're not necessarily advocating for the conspiracy theory, you can kind of let it fester by saying people should be allowed to think what they want to think.
0: Yeah, the interesting thing is, is, and this is primarily a con. Well, this is a conspiracy. Right, looking at the polls, and your remainers are slightly likelier to believe than leavers, right? So, Sarah, is that because you're more likely to have seen this if you're younger, and it spreads through social media and online, or is there sort of another reason why that is the case?
1: Well, I do think that you probably do get a weird combination at the moment, and and this is kind of my own anecdotal evidence, so you know, I can't say this for sure. But the young people I have spoken to kind of equate people who believe in this particular conspiracy theory. So like believing in 5G causing coronavirus, they kind of equate that to people just like questioning the government. So when I was speaking to these people actually just earlier this week, they were like, Oh, yeah, but like, we should question the government, we should be questioning Boris, like holding him to account, blah, blah. blah." And so like, you know, I understand why people believe in these conspiracy theories, because we should be questioning it. And so I do wonder if that does tend to have an effect. And yeah, and you are seeing in this pandemic in particular, like with the House Party app, people believing that that was like hacking your phone when it there, there was no evidence that was happening. It's stuff that's circulating on Snapchat, circulating on Instagram. And yeah, kind of like, I don't know if radicalizing is the right word, but capitalizing on young people who are relatively vulnerable, who are just believing stuff they're reading on young people platforms traditionally. Hmm.
2: And you wrote that good piece about how celebrities are kind of getting on board with it. So I guess it doesn't have that sort of crank, crankish sheen that most conspiracy theories have if
1: if people on Instagram who young people follow are kind of giving credence to it yeah and it's not like just like weird uncool people like a lot of the conspiracy theories that you've seen in the last like 20 years are believed by sort of like not to offend our dad listeners but sort of like daddish celebrities like you know 50 year old musicians that were maybe popular in the 80s you know old retired you know right-wing politicians that kind of thing but yeah it's like Wiz khalifa and people <laughs> from Maiden in chelsea not that people made in Chelsea are super cool, but like they're more what a young person might be coming across versus like, I guess like Woody Harrelson is another person who is a 5G believer, 5G truther. And he would be more in that other demographic. But yeah, it's a lot of, you know, favorites of young people. It's happening on social media. And yeah, and you're not really seeing that many celebrities coming out and like condemning it. It's also really popular amongst influencers. I should say that as well, like health influencers mm-hmm. who are anti-vaxxers or very like certain foods give you toxins kind of a thing they're really pushing 5g so yeah it is very easy to see that in sort of weird grassroots way on social media young people are getting exposed to this more than middle-aged or older people
2: you've been listening to the new statesman podcast with me anusha kellyan and my colleagues stephen bush patrick mcguire alva ray and sarah minavis We're produced by Nick Hilton, and our music is Devil by the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons.